0: handouts. Uh, This one first. This one is, uh, so I have on here, because I told you about the elaborado, the paper. Sometimes people are like, I don't know what I'm supposed to write on. It's my first one. I don't know what the professor wants. So I gave you some questions. If you want to write on these, feel free to. Um, But again, no summary of the text. Just gotta throw that out again. So when you cry, when I give you a D, I'm just gonna say I said it three times. Okay? Here's questions. You can you can come up with your own question. I do ask this though. Okay, it's a two to three page paper, <clears throat> double space. You know, and again, like I don't want. I hate this when people do this. You know, it's like your name, the class, the date, uh, your name again, <laughs> my name, then the, the title. You know, so like you're starting halfway down the page. Just so put your name, the title if you want, and start writing. Okay, <clears throat> double space. Um, you can, If you choose to write on one of these, at the most you should pick two. I'm hoping you can just use one, okay? Because otherwise what you do is you pick like, I've had people pick like four of these, and they'll be like, you asked this and I say this, you know? And then the next paragraph, you asked this and I said this. It's not what I want. I want you to really work through something, work through a question. And again, like, you don't have to do this on your own. You know, if you're thinking about beauty, like we were just working on... What, what's your name? Adam. 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 and I were just working on, on beauty, and he was asking some questions about it. He's like, well, dictionary.com says this about beauty. By the way, if you want to use dictionary.com, that's fine. I hate dictionary.com. Like what I want... You, should, you, you could use it like this. Dictionary.com says this about beauty. However, this is the philosophical definition of beauty. According to... Hume, which is a terrible philosopher, but, you know, you picked one. And this is why he's wrong or why he's right. Or maybe just go on. This is the beauty of the Internet. Nobody uses it for the right reason. Everybody uses it just to cheat. Instead, use it as it's supposed to be, a resource tool. So type in, is beauty objective subjective? And then don't copy and paste, but read, I know this is a really crazy thing to think about, read about what people are saying, and then all of a sudden you're like, St. Thomas Aquinas said this, you're like, oh, St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas and beauty. Okay, now I'm reading about Aquinas. Now I'm reading about this. Now I'm reading about, now I'm compiling my thoughts and putting them on paper. And I might want to use some of my resources. Fine, document them you don't document them, that's called plagiarism. You can get kicked out of university for that. Okay, and it's usually not that hard to pick up plagiarism. Because it's like you're writing, you're writing, you're, and then somebody with a doctorate's writing, and then you're writing, you're writing, and then somebody with a doctorate's writing, and then you're, especially when we're talking about philosophical concepts. Problem is, is that anybody can be published on the internet right now. So you might imagine how been, you know Bob said in Nebraska? He's objective. And I agree with Bob. And that's fine, but just defend it. That's all I'm asking, okay? So those are some questions. <clears throat> Hopefully uh, they're helpful. If not, you can do your own thing. Uh, turn to the next page. I actually had, so we're talking about you know, beauty, or, you know, truth being objective. Lewis is alluding to the fact that there is this law of human nature, this objective kind of code of conduct for humans that's guiding us, that's showing us how we ought to act, et cetera, et cetera. This is a past student of mine who actually wrote a rebuttal to C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis' book is called what? Mere Christianity. So he titled his Mere Survival. Guess what his whole premise is? That everything that we call objective is all based on what? Survival. And, yeah, partially subjectivity. But more than anything, it's survival. And he's using a very Darwinistic Right, so he's talking about who? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin. Right, and again, I want to be very clear evolution is not from the devil. Catholics don't condemn evolution as an evil, terrible heresy. All we say is evolution has to have what? A beginning. Huh? Beginning. A beginning. And obviously, that beginner is the creator, so we say God has to be involved in this. Actually, it was just out at the C conference. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's a focus we have on, on campus here, the Fellowship of uh, Catholic University Students. They put right. on this huge thing. about 10,000 college kids there, and Chris <laughs> Stefanik was up, and he, was, he was, uh, he's a Catholic uh, speaker uh, at a lot of Catholic events. and He got up, and he was like, you know, I, he's like, I put on this thing about relativism and, and how truth is real and objective, and, and I had an atheist comment, because he had a YouTube, you know, a little video or whatever. He said, an atheist comment. He's like, Chris... He's like, do you really believe in a God? He's like, that's like telling a kid that Santa's real. And when he comes downstairs, do you really think Santa brought those gifts to him? And Christopher like, you know what? And he said, you know how I answered him, I said, you know what? I think that's more reasonable than telling the kid when he came downstairs and sees all the gifts that they just happened to come into existence. <laughs> do you get the point? We're going to talk more about this. We're going to get into a little bit of evolution. Because evolution says everything is what? It's all by chance. Just by chance. I was just reading an article, actually. More and more scientists are coming to the, the, the belief that there is a creator. Now, this doesn't mean that the, the God of Christianity or the God of Islam, or what, but there is a creator. In the 1960s, there was, I can't remember what his name was, but he came out this thing, and he said there are two things that are necessary for life to exist a star that is a certain distance from a planet and oxygen. Okay, Those are his two things. He said if you have those two things, you can have life. And because of that, he, made, he posited that over 25 million possibilities are possible in the universe. So there's 25 million possible worlds that could support life. Because there's only two two, count them, Things that you need to support life. Well, guess what? Everybody went crazy. We started setting up big satellites and started shooting. We called it the SETI program. You know, the search for extraterrestrial life, right? And everybody was shooting to the sky. And they're like, there's got to be other planets. Well, while these people are doing all that and looking for you know UFOs and whatnot. Other people were actually saying, is, is what he said true? And they started to say, well, actually, no, there's not, there's not just two. There's actually ten. A little bit later he so said there's not actually ten, there's actually a thousand. There's not actually a thousand, there's actually a million. There's actually a million, there's actually I can't remember what the actual number is, but the amount of things that have to be exactly correct. They can't even minutely be off. Is astronomical. And so people are really scientists are really beginning to believe that it is possible, number one, for a creator, because this world is so ridiculously put together. And number two, that it is possible that Earth, our planet, is the only life-sustaining planet in the universe, as life as we know it. So, evolution? I don't know. We'll talk more about it. It's an interesting question for sure. I do believe in evolution. I'll talk more about that. Anyway, so he wrote this on that. So I want you to read through this, Okay. <clears throat> And next week, I want you to write this down because it's not on your syllabus. Next week, those of you who are taking notes for your friends that aren't here, make sure they know this. A one to two page paper. So it's not two to three pages, one to two pages. Okay. I want you to write why this guy is either correct or incorrect. And I want you to use C.S. Lewis. Got it? <clears throat> Anybody need that explained again? <clears throat> yeah, what do you mean by use like his right, his right? Yeah, I want to use you use his arguments against this guy's arguments. And I want you to systematically tear this apart. And you might read it and be like, I don't know, <laughs> I'm not sure if this is right or not right. I want you to start thinking. I want you to use your brain. Y'all have brains, and we need to start flexing them. Because if you don't flex them, if you don't use them, you get dumb. And so often, people will throw all of their work, all of their thought process, all of their intellectual intelligence, all, all that into their discipline, their study. And that's good. You should. Some of you are probably physical therapists, some of you are probably occupational therapists, some of you are probably nursing, some are teaching, some are business, some are whatever. And you're throwing all this effort into that discipline, that's a good thing. But here's the thing. Is that discipline the answer to life? I don't know. Maybe it is for you, I don't know. But I will tell you this: jobs get old. And first they're fun, then they get old. It's all how you view the world. So it's what we call a worldview. How do you see the world? Is the world existing for you just to take advantage of it and get what you want? Or is the world there for you to give to it, to be part of something, something bigger than you? I don't know, you have to answer that question, what's your rule? But I want you to systematically tear this apart. And, and, and again, the whole reason I went off that little tension is because we give so much time and so much effort to these disciplines to make money. And we give so little time and so little effort to studying philosophy and theology. Studying what life is about. What do you think is more important? Learning what brings you happiness? Truly? Not just what you think. What objectively brings happiness to humans? Or graduating summa cum laude in your discipline? Again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. If you do that, praise God, that's awesome. I wasn't smart enough for summa cum laude. <laughs> But why do we put so little effort into the most important stuff? So put some effort into this, you guys. Read through it a few times. Start asking questions. All right, turn the page to the uh, final page. This, again, you know, I'm, I know you guys got a lot, but this is a hell of an article. If you got time to read this, I'm not gonna make this like end-all be-all, but you wanna throw a little extra, and this might even help you in writing you know your paper for next week or the week after. Remember, the week after you have another one to do on your Christianity. Read this. Because this is the main problem with humanity right now. We literally think we're gods. And we'll talk more about that as we talk about relativism, okay? So those are just the handouts. Uh, Make sure you have your papers ready next week, one or two pages, Uh, and again critiquing this writing using C.S. Lewis's writing. And please you guys, as you're writing, be like, you know, he said this, but Lewis very clearly goes against what he's saying by saying this, here's what I think. I'm looking for what you think. It might not be right, but I want you to think. And that's where I want to start this whole class. We this has all been an introduction. Now, I'm just getting, now we're getting started. Okay? I want to start with what I call critical thinking because I think critical thinking is the most important thing in this world. We are human beings. What makes us distinctly different from every other animal is what? We have the ability to re- reason and what? Choose. Choose. Those are the two things, what we call them in the philosophical world, is intellect and will. This is the ability to reason, think, okay? This is the ability to choose. So, how important are thoughts? Very. The most. They're the most. Because it was one little thought that caused the genocide of six million people in World War II. And that thought was what? The Jewish people aren't human. They're animals. One thought. One little thought. You know what Hitler did originally? You know what the first thing he did? I, I, I learned this a couple of years ago. The first thing he did to the Jewish people. Does anybody know their bikes away he took their bicycles away what's the big deal it's just bikes who cares nobody was thinking and then all of a sudden it got out of control and it was too late to think and then thoughts were imposed on you and if you didn't think of you were killed and people say how did we get to this It's because nobody was freaking thinking Everybody was just going along with the flow, getting what I get. It's all about me, so long as I get my stuff, you do your own thing. There's people freaking dying over in the Middle East. Heads are being chopped off. And we sit back here and we're like, well, you know, I mean, uh, it's terrible, but what can I do? You gotta start thinking, we gotta start questioning. Is a religion that chops off heads, is that, what's going on there? What do they really mean, What, what do they really believe? Underneath all that. Or Christianity. Christianity always has this you know fundamentalist, fundamentalist Christian saying if you, don't, if you don't turn from your ways you're going to hell. Is that really what Christians believe? Is that really what Catholics believe? Do you know? Have you thought? Have you researched? Or do you just go along with the flow? Because people going along with the flow, I love this. Archbishop Sheen said this. I don't know if you know him. He's an unbelievable preacher from the 1970s, 80s. He said, dead bodies float downstream. That's a hell of an analogy. Dead bodies float downstream. Who goes with the flow? Dead people. People that have no fire, people that have no conviction. Winston Churchill said never trust a man who has no enemies because he stands for nothing. Who are the ones that are not floating downstream? Those that are swimming against it. Those are the ones that are alive. Those are the ones that are fighting against the norm, fighting against this, this huge like, it's like a tidal wave of secularism and relativism coming at us. And you can either jump on board, just like everybody else, or you can flex your intellect and you can make choices to move against it. It's up to you. Aristotle has a principle based on critical thinking. He calls it the principle, I want you to know this too. Self actualization. <clears throat> That's just real big philosophical terminology. It really is really simple. The principle of self actualization states you become what you choose. That you're, and again, if you want a little bullet point or anything. What you choose forms who you are. <clears throat> and that's why we have to think critically. Because every choice you're making, C.S. Lewis says, I don't remember if it's in this right now, he has a beautiful line, he says, every choice we make is turning us into an angel or into a devil. There's no in between you guys you either moving. Pope Francis said it best. You know, you're either serving God or you're serving the devil. There's no in between. And you know, when he, when he says devil, he means kind of a threefold thing. He means the devil himself, the real angelic creature, the devil, fallen angel, or the world, or the ego. Me. My choices influence me, and therefore I'm watching out for me. Okay? Critical thinking is a very difficult thing. It takes time, it, take, it takes patience, but it's worth it, you guys. I'm going to give you just a little example from my own life. You know, I'm a, I'm a big, I like, I like whiskey. I don't know if you guys like, like I'm talking good whiskeys, too. I'm not talking like Jim Beam and that garbage that you mix with Coke. <clears throat> I'm talking about real, dif- you know, distilled, refined whiskeys. <clears throat> but when I first started out drinking whiskey, Scotch specifically, Anybody drink scotch? Any scotch drinkers in the room? One? Nobody else? That's a shame. You really got to get into it. It's a beautiful little uh, drink. I also drink bourbon, uh, good bourbons, uh, nicely distilled bourbons. But when I first started drinking scotch, okay, it was in seminary. And I had never had scotch before. And, and for a lot of my life, I was a poser, you know? I, I, I pretended I was, you know, like I, I was a skater for a while, like, you know, skateboards. You know, but I was really terrible at it. <clears throat> and uh, But I posed. You know, I kind of dressed the way they dress. You know, I had my hair dyed blue for a while. And, like, I don't know if you guys remember. I'm starting to feel older and older every time I start teaching tell about my past. Like, when I was in high school, you know, I had, like, the big chain hanging down. I was just an idiot. I was a total idiot. And, you know, like, most of the time, you know, people would do all these tricks, like, kick flips, ollies, nollies, 50-50 grinds, all these. I couldn't do any of that. So, what I would do, though, is I would... <laughs> I would take pictures of myself, okay, and I would have my skateboard, like, I would be like this, like, on, on, a, on, a, on a grind, I'm like, take the picture, and then I'd show it to people, and I'm like, Chip, this, this grind I did out on this curb, and they're like, oh, dude, that's awesome, I'm like, yeah, you know, and they're like, do it now, I'm like, nah, oh, you know, I hurt my ankle last time, you know, I did a kick flip, and I kind came down wrong, and so I had this, I was keeping up this facade, well, same thing, you know, I kind of carried over. You know, people laugh at me, but don't, you guys do the same damn thing. <laughs> everybody's a poser, really. There's so no few very original people anymore in the world because everybody's afraid of what other people think of them. So they put on masks. But anyway, I got, to, I got to seminary and I was like, these guys came up to me. It was like my first year. I didn't know anybody. I was a total idiot. The only reason I was in seminary is because I felt God was like, go to the seminary. I'm like, I don't want to. He's like, please. And I was like, okay, you tell me when to leave. And so that's how I went into the seminary, which isn't probably the best way to go in, but God got his way, okay? So I go in, and I'm like, I know nothing about theology, philosophy. I don't even know, like, you know, I knew the Pope was John Paul II, but I didn't know any of the other ones. And so I get in, these guys come up, real good guys. They come up, they're like, hey, Waltz, you want to you come tonight? We're going to read through uh, John Paul II's new encyclical and have some scotch. And I'm like, internally, I'm like, I don't know what an encyclical is, nor do I know what scotch is. But I'm like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I was just started reading it. You know, I'll finish it and I'll get it, you know. And I'm like, because he was said reading, I'm like, encyclical. You know, I thought it was like a type of bicycle the first time I heard it, you know. But encyclical, if you know, is a letter from the Holy Father. So it was his new one and it was on, I think at that time, I think it was the one on the Eucharist. <clears throat> so I like literally got on the internet, you know, and I was like, encyclical. <laughs> and I'm like, no way, it's a letter, you know. So I printed out and I'm trying to like read through it. I don't, I don't understand any of it. And then I go up there, and I come up, and the guys are like, they're like, hey, man, what you know?" And I'm like, oh, it's so good to be here. I was like, how about that encyclical? And they're like, yeah, it was great, you know? And then they're sitting like, you want a little scotch? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. Who doesn't want scotch? We're drinking scotch tonight, right? They're like, yeah. They're like, how do you take it? And I'm like, in a glass. Because <laughs> there's two ways. You know, you can take it neat, or you can take it on the rocks. So one is with ice, one is without ice, and so I said in a glass, and they all start laughing. They're like, "Oh, you want it neat?" I'm like, "Yeah, you know." You know me, you know, Just I'm just a jackass. I'm just a total jackass. And so they give me the scotch. Now I came to find out later on that it's doers. If you know anything about scotch at all, doers is like bottom of the barrel nastiness. And you want like not only do you want ice, you want copious amounts of ice because it tastes so bad. You know, and, like, I'm fresh out of college, so I'm, like, you know, sitting there, and I have no idea this is a sipping drink. You know, and it's, they didn't give me very much. <laughs> you know? I'm like, you may as well shoot this stuff. So I'm sitting there, you know, and they're like, cheers, you know, little quick glasses. I'm just like, boom. <laughs> they're like, cheese, man. And I'm like, ooh, ooh. I'm like, yeah, and they're like, you'll i like, that's all, that's good. <laughs> they're like, do you always drink scotch like that? I'm like, well, you know, only when you first one, pour me a little more, you know, I'm a sipper after that, you know. <laughs> I'm just feeling like this idiot, you know. Then we're talking about the encyclical. I know nothing about it. They're like, what's your favorite part? And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, for it's John Paul II. I mean, it's hard not to like. You know one thing and they're like yeah you're right you know like the whole thing was good I'm like yeah you know I was like what would you guys think you know I'm like deflecting questions left and right it was a terrible night terrible and I came and I laughed and I like got out of there I'm like oh praise God <laughs> and this guy's like what I'm like yeah and he's like comes up puts his arm around him. he's like you don't drink scotch do you and I'm like no And he's like, and you don't know what an encyclical is, do you? I'm like, I don't have a clue. He's like, you're going to be okay, man. Let's go. You know, like, this guy totally took me under his wing and taught me all this stuff about seminary. But it was a terrible, terrible, terrible experience for me. Why? Because I knew nothing about my faith, and I knew nothing about scotch. Nothing. And why? what what kills me is doers. So they're drinking doers, Like, they're this, uh, you know, high, uh, you know, half-fluting sort of. We're, we're drinking God, bro. I was like, these guys are freaking posers too. Because Dewar sucks. They're drinking the bottom of the barrel mixed, you know, blended crap. Later on, I come out to figure out, you know, you single malt scotches, you got your 12 years, your 18 years, your 24 years, your 60 years. And I went, when I was in Scotland, I stayed over in Europe for four years and we took this this tour of Scotland. We called it the Spirits Tour. We thought it was pretty clever, you know? Spirit, because it's Holy Spirit, but Scotland, Scotch distillery spirits. Anyway, so we go over there, and we're, we're, we're just, and we're walking through, and we're learning all these things. And like these guys are like, "Here, taste this," and you're like, "Yeah, you know, taste this." this. So, and then we went to this one, this Glen You can actually buy this Scotch here in Bismarck. We went to their distillery, and it was 10 in the morning. Knocked on the door, and the guy's like, "We're closed, man." And we're like, "This is our last stop. It's our last distillery. We still need a space side because you know there's different sections. We like, need a space side distillery." And he's like. All right, he's like, my dad's not coming for another hour. Come on. So he, like, takes us in, locks the door behind us, and he's like, what do you guys want to do? And we're like, well, we want to try some. because we want to take some home for gifts. And he pulls out, like, five glasses for each of us. And I'm like, it's 1030 in the morning. <laughs> so he's pouring out all these, and we're sipping and laughing. And all of a sudden, you know, he's like, hey, you guys want to try the 44-year? We're like, yeah. <laughs> so he comes out. He gives some of that. Unbelievable. Then he says, do you guys want to try the 60-year? And I'm like, well, pff, yeah. So he comes up, gives us like just a spot. We come to find out the 60-year scotch per bottle is 10,000 pounds. That's $20,000. <clears> and when I had that, you guys, I sipped that and I'm like, wow. That's pretty good. And then I got in my head like, I can't drink like this. <laughs> Because I'll be broke. But there was an odd, all of a sudden, something clicked in my head. There is a difference. And there is good scotch. And doers sucks. (laughs) And all of it became really, really, and then I started learning the different vocab words. And I started learning different, you know, how they make it, how they distill the different intricacies that are involved. And I had this whole new appreciation for scotch. And also, my theology, my understanding of encyclicals. It's heightened a little bit <laughs> since ordination. And guess what? Now, when I drink a nice single malt scotch and talk about an encyclical that our Holy Father has written, guess what? It's a really good time. It's very enjoyable. Why? Well, because I'm not posing anymore. I know a different vocab. I know how the thing is made, I know where it comes from, I know the truth behind what scotch is. And now, all of a sudden, it becomes enjoyable. I have a theory that Scotch, and the way that I experienced it in that story I told you, is the way that most of you experience your faith. It's a burden because you don't know it. It's hard because you don't understand the principles behind the rules that are given. And therefore, when you get into a conversation with somebody and you got to stand up and maybe defend Christianity, if you're Christian, you back down. Why? Because of the same reason that I was this jackass sitting in this room with all these guys and I didn't know what I was talking about. So I'm trying to deflect, deflect, deflect because and I'm freaking out. They're going to find out who I am. I'm a total poser. But when you begin to learn your faith, the depths of what it is, what it means how it actually leads to a kind of a joyful life how it gives meaning and purpose to everything you do, how it defines you how it gives you a new identity and how out of that life becomes beautiful when you begin to realize that it is no longer burdensome and you begin to choose it because you know it is true The point is, you guys, did I have a choice at that moment when I said, you know what, I, I could've I could have left seminary, I could've walked away, like I could have said that was a terrible experience, I don't ever want to deal with that again. I'm never touching scotch again, and I'm never freaking reading in the cyclical and screw the church and screw the Pope's writings and I'm done. Could I have chosen that? Yeah, and it was a very terrible <laughs> it was a very terrible experience. And so out of that I could have made a choice. And that'd have been a really bad choice. The amount of people that the Lord Jesus has affected through my ministry <coughs> blows my mind. And it's not me, it's not. The only thing I said yes to is being a priest and an idiot at that. Like I'm an idiot, just um, I know that. I'm arrogant, I like honor. I like when people notice me. but I don't take, my, I don't take myself too seriously. Because I know that there's something bigger than me. And that that thing, that person, is going to be the one that will save me. And without him, I'm screwed. <clears throat> and I would say that for all of you. And so as we begin to come, when we begin to reason, mm-hmm. begin to think about, then we can make choices. And they're informed choices. One of the biggest things, and I want to be very careful, like, because I... I have a, you know, the the homosexual movement right now is huge. It's huge. And one of the things that bothers me more than anything is when people come to me and they're like, don't judge. Don't judge. You don't know that. You know what? I don't know that person. But guess what? I have thought deeply and painstakingly. And I have researched on a physiological aspect, on a sociological aspect, on a psychological aspect, and on an emotional aspect of what homosexuality does to a person, specifically the acts. I have researched that. I have talked to people that are dealing with homosexual tendencies. I have thought and thought and thought because I love these people and I want to help them. And I have made, through this thinking and this reasoning, an informed choice not to support it because it hurts the people that are in it. And most people say, don't judge. I'm pro-gay. Why? Because I have a friend that's pro-gay. That's a terrible answer. If you want to be pro-gay, that's fine. But come to me with a thought-out, reasonable argument that you have contemplated, that you have meditated on, and don't give me something out of feeling. When you live your life out of feeling is when you will destroy your life. And I'm going to give you an example of that next week. A quite humorous example. We have to think. And if we don't think on a broad scale, not just about our lives, not just about this person's life, life, but about our social, like, conglomerate, the common good. All of us. Is this good for us? Classic example, cohabitation. Living with your girlfriend, living with your boyfriend. Is that good for our society? We can talk about that. But I'll tell you what, I have thought about it. I have reasoned through it. I have dealt with people that live together. I have read statistics. I have read psychological evals. I've read psychological reports. I've studied the human person. Everybody knows that what is the grounding of society? It's families. Does cohabitation build up families or destroy families? Look at the numbers. Marriage has dropped drastically since cohabitation. Women think it's a step to marriage. Men think it's a step to get more in bed. Women then feel like they've wasted so much time on this pathetic loser that they have to stay with him. And then eventually they do get married. Is that a good marriage? Is that a good way to go into marriage? No, it's terrible. And you sit back and say, Father, you don't know. You don't know my situation. You don't know my friend's situation. You know what? I don't. But I can tell you this. Overall, cohabitation is a terrible idea for our society. If you believe that the family is the basis of society and families need to be structured and integrated in order for a society to flourish. And if you can say we don't need that, then I don't have anything to talk to you about. Because that's base level simple philosophy. Simple truth. If families don't flourish, society doesn't flourish. And right now, our family's flourishing. Think about the families you know. How many in this room right here, you know, you don't have to raise your hand, but come from divorced families? I do. How many in here don't have fathers? Or they do, but their fathers all they did was work the whole time and they never felt like they were loved. How many in here have parents that are still married but fight all the time? It's like they don't even love each other. Most of the time they just give the silent treatment to each other. They're not flourishing. We gotta start asking some serious questions, you guys, or it's gonna be too late, and it's up to you and me. You know, like, how does this stuff happen? It's human beings, man. You know, it's not like, I mean, Jesus Christ, what, what he did. I mean, like, we gotta sit back and say, Why was he so effective? Why is he. Literally, this one person has colored all of Western civilization for the past 2,000 years. And it was some no-name freaking rabbi. I probably shouldn't say that. It was no-name rabbi in Galilee. I mean, like, I bet if you went out on the street. We went out on University of Mary and I took a globe without any names on it. And I said, where's Galilee? How many of you think you pointed out? Most people can't even point out Saudi Arabia. Nobody knows where this guy came from. He had three years of ministry where he did some miracles. I don't know, a few things. Most of the stuff, most people didn't see. Only his apostles saw, who were his eyewitnesses. And then he rose from the dead. Well, oh, who wouldn't buy into that? I mean, that's, that's crazy. Unless he's really alive. That's not so crazy. But we got to start asking questions. Because in the end of your life, you guys, Aristotle will say this, whoever you become is your fault, be that good or bad. Do you have a question? No. <clears throat> we always want to blame other people, but there are choices. <clears throat> you were asking for Viktor Frankl's book for Preston, right? Yep. Man, Search for Meaning. A book is all about, that. He would, they were in the concentration camps, and one thing that the Nazis could not take away was their choice. They could choose to love them. The Nazis hate them, they think they're dirt, they think they're not even human, but yet we can sit back and we can choose to love you. You can't take that away from us. And that gave meaning and purpose. It's the one thing that cannot be taken away. And it's the one thing that we take for granted like that. We make choices every day, you guys, that are forming us into somebody. And so when you get old and you're an old, crotchety old man who's pissed off at the world and hates everybody and you're on your fourth marriage, whose fault is it? Yours. If you're a happy old lady that's got everything, you know, just loves the Lord, getting ready for heaven, just happy about everything, helps everybody, whose fault is that? It's hers. Now, I'm not saying that you aren't influenced, right? We are all influenced heavily by our lives. Stuff we didn't choose came into our lives. You know, abusive parents, or maybe the lack of a parent, or maybe, you know, a sickness, or maybe I lost somebody early on, or maybe, you know, I was raped, or maybe somebody took advantage of me against my will, or maybe this, or maybe that. Those things influence you. And I don't want to diminish those in any way. But I do want to make something very clear. That we decide who we will be. And that is of the fundamental, most important things in this world. We decide who we will be. <clears throat> and that's, again, that says Victor Franco. When he's, in, he's in the concentration camps. He said, you can take everything away. You can beat me. You can torture me. But you cannot take away how I choose to love What I choose to think. I can choose to love you. Which is crazy. It's crazy to think about. Part of me thinks that we just need a depression. An economic depression. We need a war. We need something that's going to shake people out of their complacency. We live in this complacent world. A world of people that just does what everybody else does. Nobody questions. Nobody thinks. Or if they do, they're thinking out of emotion. They're thinking out of pain. They're deciding out of a wound something that happened to them. They believe some lie. We need people to start stepping up and being like leaders for people that are in pain, man. You walk around this universe, you guys don't see it, man. I do. I know it. That's one of the, you know, the pains of the priesthood, but also one of the beauties. 90%, 100%, 100% of people walking around this campus are putting on a face. <clears throat> and About 90% of them are suffering in some way that they'll never let you know about. And everybody just keeps going because everybody's focused on themselves.
1: St. Thomas Aquinas had a
0: beautiful quote. Any of you that have taken a class from me and... Back in the day, we'd know this quote. I want you to write it down. I seldom affirm always distinguish this is the quote for critical thinking Okay. so his point is when you're thinking about something what's the first thing you should do don't, don't deny, deny it. it don't turn it away so, somebody comes forward with some premise, something, don't just say no. <laughs> don't deny it. Hear it. Hear it out. But then, but then, what's the second thing? Don't just accept it. Don't just accept it. And the final thing, the third point, which is the most important point, always make distinctions. Distinctions are the most important thing, you guys, when we're talking about, like, philosophical ideologies. The example the, I the, the always use is somebody comes up to you and you're like, and literally, I like, you know, I use it. I, I try to use kind of like, I go over the top of my examples to try to prove a point. Like, you know, somebody comes up, I'm at a party, you know, and I'm hanging out, sitting there drinking beer, whatever, maybe my single malt scotch, reading an encyclical. <laughs> it's a great party, by the way. And uh, they come up, they're like, hey man, You want to do some math? So, now right away he'd say, like, well, just say no, right? That's that's what our officer told us in 8th grade, just say no, right? I'd say, like, well, um, why? Well, because it's really great, man. You get, like, this really cool, you know, buzz, you get a high. Okay. Well, what else happens? Well, I mean, some people get addicted to it, you know actually a lot of people get addicted to it oh okay. what happens in the addiction Well, your hair falls out and so do your teeth and you start selling your whole life to get more meth Oh. Yeah. Um, so what's so great about it <laughs> well you feel really good oh but your hair falls out and, and you got to go to like rehab yeah rehab happens a lot high attrition rate yeah i don't think i'm going <laughs> So that's you're making a bunch of distinctions, asking, you know, I'm not going to say no right away. I'm not going to say no, but tell, I'm not going to say yes either. But tell me about it. Tell me why you think I should believe This is one of the things that pisses me off, especially for Christians. Most people come at us attacking Christianity, like you have to defend this. You have a ah, ah, ah. you know, like I sit back and I'm like, you know, time out, okay. I just want to be clear about something. For 2,000 years, the Western world has believed this. So you tell me why you're against it. I'm not defending a damn thing. Humanity has believed this for 2,000 years. Actually, like 4,000, if you include the Jewish understanding of it. So you tell me. It's very important in an argument to always be on the offensive. Do you understand what I mean by that? The reason I tell you, these are just simple like, rules of engagement <laughs> in, the deba- in the debating world. You always want to be on the offensive. Why? You're not the one answering tough questions. You're controlling the argument. <clears throat> and you're, yeah, you're not answering tough questions. You're posing questions. You know? And so people like, they are like, God doesn't exist. Prove it to me that he does. And I'll be like, no, you know what? Time out. You prove to me that he doesn't. <clears throat> okay? Well, what about all this pain and suffering What about it? Why does that preclude that God doesn't exist? You know, most people don't. They're really stupid. Most people are dumb when it comes to theological and philosophical argumentation. They really are. They want to sound smart. They got a couple little caveats that they have stored in their brain that they throw at you as like harpoons. And that's it. That's all they have. So if you can literally just break down the argument ask for distinctions, you'll see that they don't know what the hell they're talking about most of the time. And they get confused themselves. It's very important to stay on the offensive. Anyway, so, never deny, self-affirm, always distinguish. That's gonna be our principle as we begin to look through these things. Now, as we said, I want you to write down, all human beings desire happiness, okay? So in the principle of self-actualization, your choices are for what? Happiness. Happiness. And you can say this, all people desire happiness, either real or apparent. You understand what that means? What does that mean? Well, um, well, real would be the objective sense of happiness. Uh, The apparent is what you deem to be happy. Right. So anything that you're choosing, you're always choosing for a good. So like people are going to be like, well, what about the rapist? Right. Well, what's the rapist really choosing? What does he want? Pleasure. Pleasure. Is pleasure evil? No, no pleasure is not evil Pleasure is a great good It can be twisted But pleasure is a great good We love pleasure Good Lord But can you overdo pleasure? Yeah Can you get pleasure in twisted ways? Yeah so, But the, the, the rapist What he's choosing is what he thinks Is a perceived good To get some pleasure The problem is Is it an objective good? No he thinks it's good. Do you see why relativism is understanding the truth is relative, why it's so dangerous? You're going to, if you don't. <laughs> you will, as we continue to talk about it. So every, everybody's seeking happiness, but they're doing it through ways that are either real ways of seeking happiness, or they're apparent. They're perceived. So the question we need to answer is, what is what brings real happiness? Write that down. What brings real happiness? That's the question we need to tackle and hopefully come to some understanding. Now, if you take out that second handout that I gave you, this is Aristotle's example of friendship. I gave you this because it's kind of a, it's a lot, it'd be a lot to write down. But I do, again, just so you know, too, there is a comprehensive exam at the end of this class, okay? <laughs> I, love, I love the physics. It's going to be, and people are like, what's it over? Well, it's comprehensive, so everything. <clears throat> so you don't want to just like, oh, that was a good class, right? You're going to need this <clears throat> at the end of the class. So hang on to these things in your notes, Okay. So Aristotle says, uh, what do you guys, do you have the first? Yeah, you do have the first quote, okay? Without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all other goods. That is a hell of a statement, you guys. Just think about that statement alone. What drives people, like, insane? What drives, what is, actually, here's a quick question. What is the worst torture for human for humanity? Seclusion. No human huh? No human contact. Exactly. No human contact. Seclusion. I wouldn't even say seclusion. Isolation. <clears throat> Yeah, we want, to be very, we want to be clear with our words. Because seclusion, you know, you could, be, you could go into seclusion for a while. You might need that. Isolation is forced. <clears throat> okay? So when you have no human contact, well, you guys, if we think critically about why is that? Ask yourself that question. Why is the worst possible torture for a human being to have no human contact? Why do you think, I don't even know if you have an answer, but why do you think that that is the worst torture? Because you can torture the crap out of people. But you knock, you lock off contact, they go insane. Babies that aren't raised with human contact die. What is that telling us? That should tell us something, right? What's it tell us? That it's a need. It's a, yeah. And not just kind of what you need. Every human being needs and we call that what? objective. It's a fact. And not only do they need it. If it causes us to go insane and people die, people, you guys, people commit suicide mainly because of the of loneliness. You know what? I've had family, you know, my my extended family that, that have suffered from this. It's terrible. And any of you that have lost somebody through suicide, you know, I mean 9 times out of 10 it's because they are so terribly alone. They think they override their in, their fundamental primeval instinct to survive. Is this a serious thing? Yeah. Yeah, this is really serious. Human contact, human communion is really important for the important for the flourishing of humanity is that a fair statement and without it we die <clears throat> you guys just simple critical thinking here with those distinctions do you think that maybe one of the keys to human life and happiness has to do with relationships relationships can I get, like, a head nod or something? Do you think that's possible? Yeah. I think it's real possible. Without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all other goods. I was just, this is kind of an example with uh, isolation. I was, I've been watching some, like, prison shows on Netflix. <coughs> um, and, like, the most mentally tough people, they'll say about themselves, at least, which is, Maybe an overstatement, but um, they went in. He went into isolation. They interviewed him. Two weeks in, he got a hold of a razor blade and tried to kill himself. Right? It's two weeks. I mean, yeah. He, here's one for you. I was just, I actually, I just preached on this 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 summer. Well, or the, uh, this last weekend. It's really cool. I should, I should bring it in. It's, it's two, two, two statements. One is Tom Brady. Okay. Now, as much as I don't want to admit this. Tom Brady is a hell of a quarterback. He might—he—he's vying for like maybe one of the greatest quarterbacks ever in the history of the game. Okay, and he was on 60 Minutes in 2009, <clears throat> and he was sitting there, and he's like, they're interviewing him, and he's—he—he, he, they say Tom, they're like, you got three Super Bowls, you got you know four, three, four MVPs, you're on the top of the list, you're like one of the greatest quarterbacks, you're one of the most winning quarterbacks in all of history. And Tom Brady, what he said, shocked everybody. He said, I just can't help but think there's gotta be more. Like I'm missing something. And he's like, most people say, Tom, man, like you got, you have the greatest career. You have the greatest, it's it's what everybody dreams of. And he's like, and I just, I just, you know, I feel like alone and then there's something more. And I'm and then it's the the irony of this interview is he says. The is like, well, what is it, Tom? And he's like, God, I don't know. <laughs> I love this. <it. laughs> I don't know. I'm like, dude, just said it. <laughs> like he, He's got everything, right? Everything. But yet he's alone. There's another one, Adolf Merkel. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was a, a German tycoon. He had, at the height of his career, he, he came into a wealthy family, took all of his family's assets, multiplied them beyond their wildest imagination, became like the largest... German wholesaler pharmaceutical company in the world. At the height of his wealth, he was worth $12 billion. Don't let me say that again. At the height of his wealth, he was worth $12 billion. In the economic recession of 2000, uh, 2008, right? <clears throat> he lost $3 billion which left him $9 billion. Is $9 billion enough to live on? Is $9 billion enough to do whatever the hell you want for the rest of your life for like 10 lifetimes? Yeah. In January of 2009, he threw himself in front of a tray. You guys, I mean like, Again, let's think critical about this stuff. Everybody wants to be in Hollywood. Everybody wants to be the millionaire with this huge mansion. I don't know, last time I checked, those are some of the most lonely people on the face of the planet. And they usually go crazy. I mean, one of the, you know, the, the greatest example is Britney Spears. That poor woman. I once offered mass for her. I felt so bad for her. I mean that. I thought she was so close to, like, just throwing it all away. And then where do they go? A life coach. What the hell is that? A life, I'm going to pay you thousands of dollars to tell me how to live. I mean, you can come to a priest and it's free. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, these are, <clears throat> these are just questions we got to think about. Why is a guy with $9 billion on the top of his game, throw himself in front of a train. Why is a guy who has a three-time Super Bowl, he's up for another one now, who still says, I think something's missing. I met Tom Brady when I was in Rome. I didn't even know who he was. Great guy. His wife is a pain in the ass. (laughs) Giselle, or whatever the hell her name is. Oh, is she a B-word? Just, ugh! Just, just wouldn't shut up. Just complain, complain, complain. I mean he's got a trophy wife? He's got it all, man. Not happy. So, Aristotle, without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all the goods. How true that is. <clears throat> Friendship is perhaps the highest summit of the moral life in which virtue and happiness are are united. Friendship is a worthy outlet for the talents and energies of great-souled people. Friendship likewise completes and goes beyond justice. The goodness shown in noble friendship seems higher than justice because it's entirely dependent upon one's own character and choice and is not defined or compelled by law." So you see, what he's saying is a a true friend is not compelled by a law, like, I gotta be your friend. you know you're sick, so I gotta go to the hospital and get you in the pharmacy and get you a. No, they're moved by virtue. They're moved by love. You're sick. You're my friend. I'm going. I'm just gonna go get this for you. Okay. Acts of friendship seem both more truly generous and more conducive to one's own happiness than acts done strictly because they're moral. Acting for the sake of what is good means having primary regard for one's own virtue and the good of one's own soul, whereas acting for a friend seems to be self-forgetting. Right? When I'm doing stuff for rules, you know, and some of you are going to say this, like if I'm doing, I want to go to heaven, so I'm following all these rules. Well, is that love? Are you doing it out of love? Are you doing it out because I'm going to gain something from it. And spontaneous (laughs) acts of friendship tend to be more pleasant than impersonal acts of virtue for the doer as well as for the recipient. Okay. For Aristotle, there are three types of friends. Okay, I want you to write these down. One is the pleasure friend. Two is the profit. And the word, the word that I, and that's used in this is use. So the use friend. I mean, who wouldn't want to be one of those? <laughs> You're my friend that I use. Okay. And then three, last is virtue. So the virtue friend. If you look at friend, <clears throat> friendships of pleasure, are those relationships where we hang out with people because they amuse or entertain us? How many of you? Have, how many of you have these friends? These are people that you really, you really, you know, like. They're not good for me, but or maybe they are. Whatever. But they're just clowns. They make me laugh, and I like to be around. They're entertaining as hell. They're so damn funny, and I just like. They're just the life of the party, right? <clears throat> Pleasure friends wish each other pleasure. Now, again, get your mind out of the gutter, <laughs> okay? It's not like the friends with benefits thing, although it could be. Aristotle is using this as a way that you get, you get some type of pleasure, be that, you know, laughing, joy, whatever, I don't know. These friendships are not based on the other's character, but on his or her wit or attractiveness, and they change rapidly. Pleasure friends cease to be friends when one becomes bored with the other. Now, what Aristotle writes, right, whenever it's in italics, that's him writing so there's neo Neomachean Ethics. Listen to this and tell me if this isn't true, okay? The friendship of, the young, of young people seems to aim at pleasure. For they live under the guidance of emotion and pursue above all what is pleasant to themselves and what is immediately before them. But with increasing age, their pleasures become different. This is why they quickly become friends and quickly cease to be so. Their friendship changes with the object that is found pleasant. And such pleasure alters quickly. Young people are enamorous, amorous, amorous, sorry, too. For the greater part of the friendship of love depends on emotion and aims at pleasure. This is why they fall in love and quickly fall out of love, changing often within a single day. This, I, you know, like, if you could circle this and star it and, like, tattoo it on your forehead... This is the college. This is college. It is all emotion-based. Most of the relationships that you're in, and I mean that both as friendship, but also with like boyfriend and girlfriend, most of them, I'm sure, tend to be more emotion-based. They make you feel good. They say the right thing. They seem to be there all the time. And you'll see that these two, both pleasure and profit, go together. A pleasure friend can also be a profit friend. And that's why this stuff never lasts. Because you're basing it on the wrong thing. When you get married, this is something to keep in mind. You don't marry somebody because of who they are. Okay? You marry somebody because of who they want to become. Because who they are is gonna be a mess. And you can't change any of that. It's good to be aware of it all. But what what is their end goal? That's why in Christian marriage, we're gonna say what? What I'm looking for when I say, Why did you why do you want to marry this person? Because they're gonna what? Get me to heaven. They wanna be a saint. Why are you marrying this? Because they make me feel good. Well, you know what? That's not always gonna be the case. In fact, this person's gonna make you not feel good pretty often. By the way, I just said these really, really good ladies, they're all wives, they're young wives, got awesome husbands. And I was talking, there was a group of them, I was talking to them, and I was like, what is like the what is the thing you're most thankful for? And you guys, I cannot believe what they said. They said we are thankful that we have husbands that make us cry. Who I I don't think I ever could have guessed that. And what do they mean by that? Any guesses? That they can invoke emotion out of them? Okay, yeah, maybe. I think it's something deeper than that. Maybe because they feel so loved? By their husbands? Well, yeah, and but but how? Because <clears throat> they're not they're not crying out of love. What they mean is we're happy they make us cry because in and, and, and a way that we don't like. Do you have them? Oh uh well you just said don't like, so now that mine's not wrong. Um maybe because they challenge them and then you'll out of them. <clears throat> Good. I think that's certainly part of it. Anything else? <clears throat> can't you only be hurt by people you love? Like, you truly love them and that's how like, they think it can hurt you because you're like vulnerable <clears throat> when you're really like in love. Right. And if you think about this, you guys, because <clears throat> women cry easily, just for the record. Uh, <clears throat> I even met this one girl that can make herself cry. It's really amazing. They're all like, do it, do it, do it. I'm like, and she just kind of like, and all of a sudden tears. I'm like, holy crap. How did you do that? But anyway, so women cry easily. Is it loving to always say yes? No. And I think half the problem is, is that men don't know how to say no. And women use sex to control men. (laughs) And that is a nightmare of a a marriage. You got a woman that's controlling her man with sex. And you got a man that just does whatever his wife says because he wants sex. And he doesn't know how to say no. He doesn't know how to stand up and say no to her. And that's what these women were saying. We are so grateful that we have husbands that care enough that they will stand their ground even when we cry they they're real men. <clears throat> and that they're doing it these women know they're doing it out of love. These guys are doing it out of love and it hurts. But it's better that way. <clears throat> For some reason, I, I mean, maybe it's the media or whatever we have this understanding of love like it's all supposed to be like just awesome all the time. Like you're just supposed to like always feel like butterflies and yeah. you know. Like that's not love. Like when does love grow? When there's resistance, when there's pain, when there's suffering, and when you stay together in the midst of that, and when you cling to one another because that's all you have. When you say no. You know what I mean? Think about you guys. Like, you have f- football? Football guys? Like, I mean, you guys gotta work out, right? Is, are there hard workouts sometimes? Like really hard workouts sometimes? Do you guys say no to some things? Nothing? Like how you eat. Oh, I thought you meant workout workout. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you have to say no to some things yeah. in order to get your workouts in your prime, peak, physical condition. Yeah. You got to say no to certain things. You got to eat right. Why is it when we come to love, like, you know, and marriage and stuff that, like, it's just all free for freaking all? Do whatever you want. Nothing governing love. Just as long as we love each other, whatever the hell that means, we're going to be okay. Beautiful. Hey, in fact, sorry, I got on a tangent. Pleasure friends, okay? So why, why, why is it a bad idea to base your friendship on pleasure? Because it fades. Because it fades. Because it changes. You probably want to write that down. It's a bad idea to base your friendship on pleasure because it changes. A, a clear example is when I was in uh, <clears throat> seminary, Oh, sorry, when I was in college, I, I had this huge conversion, and like I decided to go to seminary, and I told my, my friends, oh frick. I really thought these guys were my friends. And I'm like, I'm going to seminary. And they're like, see ya. I'm like, what the hell? Like, if I said let's go to the bar, you'd be right, you know, you'd jump in my car. But what happened? What happened? You changed. Huh? Your values huh? you changed. Change. I changed. My values changed. And therefore the pleasure, the entertaining, the, the, the good times that we shared, what? They're gone. There's no, there's no grounding to this type of friendship. It's just mutual attraction. And what's freaky about this, you guys, is I know a lot of people that not only do they have friends in this category. These are people they're freaking dating. They're dating these people. I mean, that's a nightmare. Sorry. Sometimes I get a little excited. About my stuff. Second, friends of use. Are those relationships based on mutual advantage? Where we hang out with people who do us some good. A business acquaintance would be a, a, a really good example of this. Use friends wish each other something of use. Like pleasure friends, Use friends or profit friends can easily stop being friends. They do whenever one is no longer of any use to the other. Such friendships can be criticized, says Aristotle. It would probably be more accurate to call these friends acquaintances. They are not friends without qualifications, but only resemble true friendship. So these are the people that... You know, you gotta you pretend to be friends with because you get something from them. They're, they're usable. And that's why you like them. <clears throat> and again, I would point out, a lot of people date with this understanding. You know and I mean? You wonder why the relationship doesn't work out. I mean, how long can you... Can you keep that up? You know what? When you you look at relationships as a whole and and how the media speaks about them and kind of the the secular push of what relationships should be, it all has to deal with what? Maybe I'm the only one that sees this. Sex? I mean, if you look on a really broad stage, that's what it's about. I know, but you know, like I just saw an article, it was like a People Magazine or something like a couple years ago where it said, uh, no, you know what, it was Cosmopolitan. And I don't read Cosmopolitan, <laughs> just for the record. But I was in the Walmart, you know, and they have them all sitting there. And I looked over and it said, when, after what date should you have sex? And the overwhelming majority was after one. Like, it, frick, there's something really wrong here. And again, I want to I wanna pull it back. You know what we were talking about, isolation? Lack of human contact? How bad does a rape screw up a woman? <clears throat> Pretty freaking bad. How bad does sexual abuse screw up a young woman or a young man, for that matter? really bad. Like, we're talking lifetime problems. But sex is just what people do. Let's critically think about this. Sex is just another thing. Why is it so flippant destructive when it is taken in just a slightly different context? Let's think critically about this. Maybe it's the fact that sex isn't just some other freaking thing. Maybe it's something really, 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 really important. And when you're, ju- you're just messing around with it, you don't realize that because you're so focused on your pleasure and your use that you're getting from the other person. That you don't realize that stuff until after the fact. You know, I mean, I get I, you get, you get people, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people. Like I said, hey, you know, that's just my job. <laughs> Signed up to talk to a lot of people. <clears throat> and you hear over and over, and, and mostly, mostly, it's young women. And I can't believe that, jerk I can't believe he used me and blah, blah, blah. Well, how long have you been having sex? I don't know, for the past two years? What did you, what did you expect? You yeah, know, you can't say that to the person because that's, that's not the way you help somebody. But really, I mean, internally, like, when you sit back and you're like, this friend hurt me, this friend hurt me, I'm like, is this a shock? Because you just poured yourself into these two relationships like they were this one, and these people weren't this. And so as soon as these changed, they said, see ya. And you see it in relationships all the time. <clears throat> You know the pleasure? got a beautiful, beautiful young woman. They're all, you know, everything's great, great. You know, like, why is it? Here's another question. Why is it that the vast majority of women singers sing about men cheating on them? You ever notice that? There's a lot of songs about guys cheating on them, like how terrible they are, and they want to take baseball bats and smash in their legs and stuff. <laughs> why is that? Because they're the ones getting hurt. That's why. But it's because they're basing everything off of pleasure and profit. You know, like, I mean, how many times you get, when you enter into a relationship, and I ask, why are you in this relationship? And you're like, because this is a damn good man that respects the hell out of me. Anytime I say no, he says okay. He never pushes me. He always loves me. He sacrifices for me. He gives to me. He never allows me to get away from myself. He doesn't allow me to get too far, you know, too far into the world. He pulls me back. How many times do you hear that? I never freaking hear that. Why you dating him? She's hot. <laughs> I mean, that's the reason. Pretty freaking shallow. And guess what, man? That's pleasure. And a little bit of profit. And guess, you know, here's the, here's the stark reality. Every one of us is going to get ugly. Even me. It's hard to, be- <laughs> it's hard to believe. We are. You're going to be an old ugly man someday probably. you got to crap your pants. <laughs> Sorry, man. You are going to be an ugly, ugly woman. <clears throat> You're going to. It's just going to happen. Beauty fades. So that, again, let's critically think of Think about this. Do I really want to base everything, throw all my chips on beauty? In a person. Probably not. Maybe, maybe, just throwing this out there, maybe we want to base it on their character. Who they are. Who they want to become. What their values are. That might be important. Yeah. Is it possible for like a friendship of pleasure or profit to grow in? It's a good question. It would be difficult. Because the problem is, is that the <clears throat> and that, yeah, I mean if there's a conversion apart and you realize like you're using somebody, you're like, I don't want, but the problem is it has to be mutual. Otherwise it falls apart. And that's why, so like when I had my conversion, that was the moment for all of my pleasure profits to turn into virtue. But guess what? Their basis is so faulty. That even if one changes, the odds that both are going to change is very few. And in fact, the only ones that did stay with me, my four friends. And I would call these guys, like, you know, you're going to realize that the, your real friends are very few people. Like, I can name a handful. Like, I got my brother. You know that doesn't really count. <laughs> but, like, I got my brother. I got Reed Ruggles. You're gonna meet him, he's coming in to teach one of my classes, because he's one of the finest men I know on the face of the earth. And he's these are guys that I know would die for me. And they will call me, like Reed and I have had straight where we're screaming at each other. And everybody's like, You guys are friends? And we're like, yeah, man, like that has to happen sometimes. You know, like one time he threw me into a locker. You know, lucky no kids saw that at the high school. But he's like, you gotta wake up, man. He's like, you're all screwed up here. And he was right. But that's what good virtuous friends do. And I got a couple others. And when I had my conversion and I did move on to the priesthood, guess what? Those guys are still my friends. Because it was never this. <clears throat> all those other guys, like, and even when I get together with them, it's awkward. Because we don't have the same we don't have the same values. Is it possible to have like a friend with? Characteristics of all three. Hmm. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think maybe what you're trying to get at, this is the only way I see it working, is you have a virtue friend who's a sinner. Which is all of us. Right? So I mean you have a virtue friend who struggles with some pleasure and profit. And like, they, but they but the but the point is, is the focus of a virtue friend is I realize I struggle with this, but I don't want this. Whereas the pleasure-profit friend is, a lot of them don't even realize they're doing it, but those that do realize it, they're doing it because they want to do it. They like the pleasure. They like the profit. Whereas the virtue is going to say, you know what, These these are good byproducts of the friendship, but I don't need these. And when these go away, they're not necessary for my friendship. So I hope what you're beginning to see, this is the whole point I didn't bring up this whole example, is what Aristotle is trying to say is he's saying if in fact virtue friends are the only ones that are stable, enduring, have the same value system as we do, spend time together, you know, like they're they're there through thick and thin. That's what virtue does. That in fact, those type of friends make you the most happy. Is that a fair assessment? Is that a, like, I don't want you to just agree with me. I want you to follow the argument. Because he's laying out a very systematic argument, trying to get down to a point where he says that virtue is what brings happiness in friendship. In good times and in bad. Are you with me? Because if you're not with me, we have to stop. But if you would agree with me, then what Aristotle is going to say, based on this premise, is what leads to happiness. A virtuous life. Choosing the good. No matter if it's hard or easy. Choosing the good. Now here's the problem. What the heck is the good? And that's where we get into objective truth and subjective truth. Which is what we'll deal with next week. Any questions? Feel free. I like to kind of open it up at the end. You know, don't run out of here. It's a lot to process tonight, man. We took, I mean, you take in a lot. This stuff, and and I don't know, I hope, like I don't know what it's doing to your heart. I really don't because only you know you. But I remember when I first heard this stuff, something in my heart caught on fire. Like I'm like, I know you. This stuff is real. I know this stuff is true. I can't prove it. I might not like it because it flies in the face of how I'm living my life. But the what he's talking about, I get that. This stuff is not rocket science. Critical thinking, intellect, will, choosing, principle of self-actualization. How to argue. What else? <clears throat> Ugliness. <laughs> All of it. It's, I had a professor one time that said truth is like a symphony." The more you learn, the more beautiful it becomes. And the more you learn, the more beautiful it becomes. When you hear a wrong note, you will recognize it. And you won't choose it. You'll choose what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. Okay, any, any, anybody else? Ouch. Getting old. Nothing. Didn't generate more conversation. Okay, we'll see you next week. Please read through that stuff for your papers next week. Remember, next week it is what did I say? one to two page. From there on out, it will be two to three page. Yes. Are you gonna publish the syllabus? I will. I'll get that online tomorrow. Yep. Yep. I'm gonna. I just figured out how to use it. Dr. Hughes showed me that, so I'm gonna maybe put my picture of. <laughs> And then I'm assuming you guys want me to publish grades, right? Yeah. yeah. Cuz there's there's an option to not publish grades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>